This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Thyroid cancer is often detected either by a healthcare provider or a patient discovering a thyroid nodule. Many nodules are found incidentally with imaging tests ordered for other reasons. And only rarely is thyroid cancer brought to the patient's attention as a result of symptoms. Fortunately, most thyroid nodules are benign. However, they are relatively common and healthcare providers need to be comfortable in evaluating these nodules in the event that it does represent a thyroid malignancy. With us today to discuss thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer is Dr. Jan Kasperbauer, a physician in the Department of Otolaryngology at the Mayo Clinic. Jan, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Daryl. Happy to be here. Hopefully it'll be insightful. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Well, who is more at risk for developing thyroid cancer? Can you separate some groups out of there that uh, are at increased risk of getting this? Well, there are certainly some with hereditary or familial patterns. There aren't a huge number of uh, characteristics that one would say with a patient coming in that this is going to be an obvious patient that's going to have thyroid cancer, but a history of familial or familial history of thyroid cancer. And then there are certain cancer syndromes and MEN is one of those, MEN2 specifically, and that's a, a medullary thyroid cancer in particular. There can be other things that can make one think and questions one should ask patients would be a radiation exposure. Again, that's rare, but radiation exposure can escalate risk in a given person. And that can be probably most likely with external uh, disasters, if you look at that sort of thing. Uh, the dose related to radiation exposure, whether it's CT scanning or other x-rays is really pretty minimal. So it'd be unlikely that that would be a contributing factor. Let's talk about how thyroid cancers are generally found. Um, in my 40 some years, I have found you know numerous thyroid cancers, but I have to admit most of them have been found incidentally on maybe a carotid ultrasound or some other imaging study. Uh, maybe that speaks to my uh, ability of examining the thyroid, but how are most thyroid cancers found? Well, I think most thyroid cancers in the present day are found on ultrasound imaging and has accounted for an escalation in the number of cancers being diagnosed. With the sensitivity ultrasound, there's probably been a tripling of the yearly incidence of thyroid cancers between 1975 and 2010 approximately. So there's been a significant increase and perhaps half of those are related to identification of what we would call a sub-centimeter thyroid lesions or really small lesions. Otherwise, normally the patient oftentimes will notice a nodule as I'm sure you experienced in, in your practice, but patient identification is not infrequent or the patient may present with a neck mass and further evaluation of that neck mass prompts identification of the thyroid abnormality. In more advanced cases, there may be symptoms that the patient experienced that triggers the identification, such as hoarseness or dysphagia. That would typically be more advanced tumors and obviously worrisome findings and kind of escalate the urgency for evaluation. Okay. 
Well, I know thyroid nodules are relatively common. How often do they actually represent a thyroid cancer? Probably seven to 15% of thyroid nodules would end up being a thyroid cancer. As you mentioned, palpable thyroid nodules are probably present in 5% of females overall, and maybe 1% of males. And so the actual numbers of nodules that are cancer is fairly low. But it's still important to understand that a thyroid nodule generally should warrant an ultrasound evaluation, not only of the thyroid, but of the neck. I think that would, a takeaway would be if, if there's a patient that presents with a thyroid nodule, or if on exam you identify a thyroid nodule, that that's one of the key steps, first steps in evaluation. Okay. Well, these thyroid nodules are probably most commonly found by the primary care provider or the patient. So as a primary care provider, how should we evaluate these thyroid nodules? What should we do when we discover one uh, palpation or by imaging? Well, I think, first of all, you have to take a good history from the patient. You're trying to understand, are there dysfunctions of the thyroid gland that may be important to understand? So are there symptoms that would suggest a functional nodule versus not? Obviously, a good physical exam. So you can, uh, in my practice, the character of the nodule that you can palpate, is it hard? Is it sticking to other structures? Is it painful? And then you weigh in, is there adenopathy? And then are there associated symptoms of hypo or hyperthyroidism? And then once your examination and history say, this is a thyroid nodule, we're going to have to evaluate it. That's when an ultrasound would be done. And then also screening laboratory studies. And typically that would be kind of a thyroid cascade sort of thing. And at least in our laboratory setting where you like to see a TSH free T4. And then depending upon information that one gathers, the nodule itself can be of variable characteristics. And one of the key things that is useful and I think that all primary care providers should be aware of is there's a classification scheme based on the ultrasound that can stratify risk and the need for further evaluation of a given nodule. And so hopefully the ultrasonographer that is evaluating the ultrasound will at the end of it be able to say, based on is there microcalcifications, is it taller than wide, is there a regular border, is it hypo, or hyper-echoic compared to normal thyroid tissues, and then stratify those characteristics and say, this is X percent risk of malignancy needs FNA versus it's not worrisome and can be observed. Is it the uh, ultrasound characteristic that determines who should have a fine needle aspirate of the thyroid? It's certainly one of the strong characteristics. It's probably the main driver. And those characteristics that we discussed, but also the size. So a key important is size. Something less than a centimeter generally is not recommended for further evaluation. Even though it could be a small cancer, and I guess this is a key point, not all thyroid cancers need attention. That may sound a little bit unusual, but the less than one centimeter nodule in a mature individual such as us perhaps mm -hmm. would not necessarily need further intervention because it, it's generally an indolent lesion 
And if there's no adenopathy, the work and expense of managing that just doesn't necessarily bear out. So there's a potential for careful observation or watchful surveillance sort of thing to, that you could follow along. And if it doesn't grow, then you can leave it alone. Okay. So if the characteristic on ultrasound is that of a benign nodule, how often should these things be followed with ultrasound? I guess it depends a bit on what what does mean. If, if on that classification scheme it's listed as benign, mm-hmm. then size will, if it's less than a centimeter or even maybe two centimeters, you may not have to, to do anything. And, and in our practice, we oftentimes say, when you see your primary care provider, that once a year or how often it is, if a physical exam does not reveal change in that thyroid gland, then nothing more may need to be done. If there's a finding on physical exam or if there are symptoms, then further evaluation would be considered. And again, then that would trigger an ultrasound. There are some nodules that are sort of in that in-between degree of is it completely not worrisome or is there some factors, size or maybe uh, hypoechoic that would say, yes, an ultrasound in a time interval such as a year. And so there is a way to stratify some of those nodules to an additional ultrasound follow-up. Then if we take a step and say, well, here's a nodule that's of suspicion in an age range that and size and characteristic that on ultrasound is worrisome, and based on the criteria and needle biopsy or biopsy is warranted, it's best to use ultrasound guided biopsies because you can aim at specific areas or more suspicious areas of the lesion. Sometimes lesions are partially solid, partially cystic, and getting tissue from the area that's actually solid is going to give you the biggest reward in terms of making the diagnosis. And then one has to understand that biopsy results may not always be plus or minus. So there's a number of different results that can come from a biopsy, and that's what's going to help next steps in management. And if the result is non-diagnostic and the radiologic criteria are not too suspicious, again, that's when we're going to say we're going to observe it. If there's marginal suspicion, you may say, we'll do an ultrasound in a year. If, on the other hand, the thought is that, gee, this looks suspicious and you're among your options for cytology results, it's non-diagnostic, then you say, gee, I don't believe it, we may repeat it. But what I was getting at is it could be non-diagnostic, the result may be benign, and if it's benign, then you don't have to worry about that lesion. If it's atypical, which in our experience is fairly rare. I think our cytologists are quite good at trying to avoid that kind of question mark diagnosis of atypia because it really doesn't tell you what's going on. There's the opportunity or option that it could be a follicular neoplasm. And then it could also be suspicious or positive for cancer. Those are the results that could come from a fine needle aspiration biopsy. And the follicular neoplasm is one where the cytology raises a suspicion of that type of lesion, but doesn't sort out whether it's malignant or not. And in that particular group of patients, oftentimes surgery is required to establish whether that lesion is cancer or not, because the differentiator between benign and malignant is, does the tumor 
invade through the capsule into thyroid tissue or is there vascular invasion? And neither of those are capable of being established by a needle biopsy. More recently, there's gene classifiers where with a separate needle biopsy of that lesion, they can do a molecular characterization of that lesion. And based on gene expression, they can say this may have a risk of a certain percentage of being malignant or more likely benign. That's out there in the literature. It's not been a consistent um, in terms of correlating with surgical findings at Mayo. And again, it may be that our pathologists sort those out better than others. So, mm -hmm. that, but that information's out in the literature suggesting that that type of testing is helpful, but it's expensive and we're not certain it adds a lot for us. There are a variety of different types of thyroid cancers, some being more aggressive than others. Can you review those for us? Yes. I mean, that's one of the really interesting things about thyroid cancer. You have the thyroid gland itself is made up of follicular cells, which are what make thyroid hormone. And so there's a series of malignancies associated with those type of cells. Also in the thyroid gland, there's parafollicular C cells, which are neural crest in origin and also are present in the thyroid gland and, and they can generate cancer. Then you also have other elements that make up the thyroid gland, blood vessels, there's nerves there. And so all of those other elements can also, but rarely form tumors. And it's important to remember that other malignancies can metastasize to the thyroid gland. If one wants to really focus on what's the most common, it's follicular derived thyroid cancer. And that means papillary thyroid cancer, which is like 80%, very common and also a very indolent cancer in most cases. There are some variants of papillary that can be more aggressive. The other two main types would be follicular, which is a histologic subtype. And so on microscope, it's different and it's all clinical behavior is different from papillary. And then there's Herthel cell carcinoma, which is a separate variant, and it's characterized by its eosinophilic nature because it's filled up with mitochondria. And then there's anaplastic thyroid cancer, which is probably one of the most aggressive cancers people can experience. Its life expectancy is about six months. Now, that's a separate topic, but we have made progress with that, so I think we can't necessarily accept six months. That's the diversity within follicular derived thyroid cancer cell cancers. The medullary thyroid cancer, which is derived from the neural crest cells, that's an interesting um, tumor in and by itself has different characteristics and different tumor markers and things that you can follow to help surveillance. And it's associated with the MEN genetic abnormality. So it's a RET mutation so that it offers a whole new spectrum and consideration because some of those mutations can be expressed in the pediatric population and certain mutations, there's recommendations that by six months of age, that child should have a thyroidectomy because you know the hyperplasia of the C-cells is gonna to transition to a malignancy and you like to treat that before that develops. Almost on the other end of the spectrum is the routine papillary thyroid cancer where it's generally slow growing. The first area of spread, if it's going to spread typically, is going to be lymph nodes near the thyroid gland or in the neck. And managing that primary and metastatic disease surgically is oftentimes going to be combined with TSH suppression. 
So TSH for these papillary thyroid cancers is a growth hormone almost. It's going to drive those tumor cells to grow. So TSH suppression, which is in the realm of our endocrine colleagues, there's a, a goal, a specific laboratory goal that you want to reach based on the aggressiveness of the thyroid cancer. And how do you understand the aggressiveness of the papillary thyroid cancer by staging and path results? We're starting to step towards treatment in, in, in that discussion. So once we get a FNA back that shows evidence of a thyroid cancer, are there additional tests that you would want the primary care provider to order, or is that time to just send the patient to ENT? Yeah, so I think it depends a little bit on your where you are and, and what's, I would say that one thing that I would encourage is build a team so that when you see these types of patients that you have a resource, you know, say, I'm going to this radiology team, this endocrine team so that you have a team built to help with this. When the thyroid cancer is diagnosed, then usually it should be an endocrinologist that becomes involved. And then they would usually team with a surgeon because surgery is a mainstay. If there's a thyroid cancer that's diagnosed, then you obviously still want to know thyroid function tests and understand that. And a side would be if there's an if you start with a nodule, and I wanted to bring this point out, and I if there is TSH suppression and a nodule, then your evaluation is a little bit different than a non-functioning nodule. So a non-functioning nodule is more frequently malignant. I think that's an important element to, to have in your background. Other evaluations would depend a bit on the stage that you're estimating the tumor is based on the ultrasound. So if you have an isolated thyroid nodule and laboratory studies are normal and there's no cervical lymphadenopathy, I don't know that there's any great reason to look at the chest, which would be the next stage of metastasis. Now, if there's lymph nodes in the neck, there's an advanced thyroid tumor, then one begins to think about other metastasis, and then you can expand the evaluation. A point could be that I know for other malignancies, some the role of PET scanning is helpful, but in well-differentiated thyroid cancer, PET scan is generally not going to be something you're going to order uh, because the tumor cells just don't consistently take up FDG glucose, and so it won't be very helpful. I'm not in the step where is it chest x-ray versus CT, but certainly a CT without contrast of the uh, chest is going to be uh, more useful than a regular chest x-ray. And usually for evaluating the chest, you don't need contrast. I'm of the bias that when we evaluate for extensive thyroid disease, and if there's hints that the lymph nodes are both central compartment, which means around the thyroid between the carotid arteries, as well as out in the lateral neck or low in the neck on the ultrasound. I like a CT scan because it helps me localize and sort of navigate to where I need to make sure I address those areas of disease. And when I'm looking at a CT scan of the neck, contrast is really helpful. Now, if you look historically, there is a embedded sense that you want to avoid contrast when you're evaluating thyroid malignancy. And I think that's really unfortunate because contrast adds so much. And what does contrast do in the setting of thyroid cancer? It may delay the opportunity for radioactive iodine for a few weeks. 
which in this case really is not meaningful. And the contrast adds so much to our understanding, especially when we're trying to look at does the tumor proximity to trachea, esophagus, blood vessels extending down to the mediastinum. So uh, for us, uh, for me, for most uh, surgeons, a CT scan with contrast really escalates one understanding and, and, and facilitates surgical planning. Let's talk a little bit about management. How should these patients with thyroid cancer get treated? What are the treatment options? Yeah, so there's, uh, I think we brushed on already, surgery is key, unless it's that cancer that's less than a centimeter that can be just watchful observation. But surgery is a key element of that. And then once you have the path report, that's when you can then use the outcomes evaluation and stratify patient risk using MASIS or AIMS. So there are, they're not really staging criteria, but they're outcomes prediction based on path findings that will say this patient has a 90% survival. And then is TSH suppression alone or what level of TSH suppression is needed? If it is a papillary thyroid cancer and there may be small nodules in the chest or a fair amount of lymphadenopathy, then radioactive iodine becomes an option. And that's really beneficial and helpful. Unfortunately, it's not always effective. And so one has to keep that in mind. Typically, when we think about uh, radioactive iodine, usually there's a scan using I-123, I think, which is a gamma emitter. And you look at what's the distribution. And this is where the endocrinologists and our nuclear medicine physicians get together and say, well, what dose do we need based on that? And then usually the therapeutic dose is I-131, which is a beta emitter. So if they take up the radioactive iodine, that's a pretty healthy dose to that tissue. And one has to keep in mind that there are side effects. And so that not everybody with papillary thyroid cancer should get radioactive iodine. So it should be a risk-based decision because radioactive iodine may cause side effects related to salivary gland function. There's risk somewhat to kidneys. And in some cases, the escalation of dose can then also cause some bone marrow toxicity. In far advanced cancers, perhaps with invasion of local structures, external beam radiation therapy can also be considered as a treatment. There's a careful balance one has to keep in terms of what's the potential benefit versus morbidity. So when you start radiating trachea and esophagus, you have to worry about is the patient gonna have long lasting dysphagia and other changes related to the airway. But there's, so you need to have a balance and having a good radiation oncologist on the team for those patients is also key. And this is going to continue it to evolve, um, molecular therapy. So therapy based on what are the specific changes within that tumor. And so if there's similar perhaps to melanoma, is there a BRAF B600E mutation that therefore you can have a number of targeted therapies that would potentially help. And there's also immunotherapy. And so your endocrine oncology team becomes a team member for those as well. So if one takes a step back, one has to look at obviously the type of tumor. So if it's 
routine, most common papillary thyroid cancer. That's mostly what I've covered there and an escalation based on the aggressiveness of the disease. If there's bony mets, then oftentimes radiation can help manage those. And the thing I would comment on, and maybe as a reminder, is that if there's an anaplastic thyroid cancer, that's an entirely different workflow. If you have suggestion clinically and final aspiration suggestion that could be anaplastic, your timeline for trying to complete the evaluation and develop a treatment plan should be two weeks. The tumor is so rapidly progressive that that's kind of an emergency. And you sort of one needs to have a team that has a common thought process in terms of the urgency, in terms of how do you evaluate, and so PET scan, CT imaging, those sorts of things, but also need to understand how to counsel the patient relative to the dire straits that are typically facing those patients. So you need to have the patient and the family prepared. And so it's quite complex. But in doing that, we've sort of changed our perspective of saying, gee, that's a insurmountable problem to say, how can we best affect an improvement in their care? And at some occasional cases, we can cure the disease. It's not very common. It takes special characteristics. But there are also things that we can do to prevent disease from generating some really horrific changes because of obstruction of structures at the root of the neck. So we like people not to have to die of suffocation and still be able to swallow and things like that. So aggressive early intervention and molecularly characterizing these tumors will identify patients that have a better response to targeted therapy as well. So I think the combination of targeted therapy and radiation uh, will shrink maybe the role of surgery because with surgery, we don't want to put the patient in a position where they're prevented from getting to systemic chemotherapy or radiation. So the scope of your surgery you don't want to generate a wound that you would say, we have to have him heal four weeks before we can start treatment. And so that scope of your surgery shrinks a little bit with anaplastic thyroid cancer. Okay. I believe in my career, I have seen only patients with localized papillary malignancy. How should they be followed by us, by primary care providers? The typical ones would be, again, listening to the endocrinologist. Normally, our, my working relationship is our endocrinologist will say, this is what we would suggest. And if it is something that's very low risk, then it may typically be just in palpation, monitoring, TSH, and patient symptoms. There are other risks or higher-risk lesions that will require reevaluation with ultrasonography and laboratory studies and thyroglobulin measurements. And so I think it, that would come from a communication with the endocrinologist, at least in our working group, because they are the ones that would estimate what's the risk long-term, what's the need for thyroid suppression. Usually, however, I can say that if you get to five years and there's not been a problem, then it would simply be followed with your primary care physician, physical exam, and thyroid function testing. The other patients that are in the more aggressive group then one would have to say, are they following up with endocrine? But I think I always, and it's in general for not only thyroid cancer patients, but our head and neck cancer patients, I look at every other provider in their care system 
hopefully has an understanding that they've had this disease and can, at the time of a visit, help question the patient whether there's something that should raise concern or can they do an exam of that area to help us. And that includes thyroid, so palpating that area, listening to the voice, listening to their whether they're having swallowing, and in patients that need it, appropriate laboratory studies. Okay. Well, let's conclude by maybe asking you to give our listeners maybe a couple key or take-home points regarding thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer. One would be form a team and follow guidelines. Medicine becomes increasingly a team approach, and I think that's huge, and, and guidelines. Those originate from a group of people that have really focused on a disease process, and I think there's evidence to suggest that guidelines are very helpful and can overcome individual biases and the outcomes I think are probably better. So that would be one. And I always, because of my bias and interest in anaplastic thyroid cancer, I just say, don't forget anaplastic thyroid cancer, not to the extent that every time you see a thyroid nodule, you think that, but it is such a timely identification to keep that in the back of your mind. And then on the very other end of the spectrum, to tell patients that not all thyroid cancers need treatment and that the vast majority of the time, the outcomes with the vast majority of thyroid cancers is quite good. What's the financial and mental weight that comes with a diagnosis of thyroid cancer? And to try to help alleviate that, the organizations that describe thyroid cancers have taken the step for small lesions, describing them as non-invasive follicular neoplasms with papillary-like nuclear features rather than labeling them as a small cancer because they want to alleviate patients of being labeled with cancer and try to de-escalate treatment for that patient population. And I guess the other thing I would say is anyone that takes care of these patients are really thankful for primary care providers identifying these starting the evaluation, and hopefully being willing to follow up with those patients as well. Well, we've been discussing thyroid nodules and thyroid cancers with Dr. Jan Kasperbauer from the Department of Otolaryngology at the Mayo Clinic. Jan, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us. My pleasure, Daryl. I was happy to be here. Hopefully, it was of some benefit. It definitely was. Thanks. Well, you can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.